I want you to meet Sheila. I haven't got a picture of her, sorry. Sheila has a personal history which has uh, left her emotionally rather screwed up. Don't think she'd like her picture put up. She's a Christian and she's here this morning looking for help. Someone told her about this church and she wonders whether this pastor can help her. So she's here today to see if he measures up to his reputation. And sitting next to her is Rob. Uh, Rob has been attracted by the the imaginative evangelism that this uh, church is doing. And he's to see if this pastor is as evangelistically gifted as the publicity would suggest. Over there is Rita. Rita has heard that this church's pastor cares about the poor. She's come to see if he lives up to her standards. She's watching. And across the way is uh, Jonathan. Jonathan is a busy man and he just wants a pastor who runs the church efficiently, who uh, uh, teaches the Bible well and who makes things happen. And then I want you to, to introduce you to the pastor. And the pastor stands at the front and uh, his eyes scan the people in front of him and uh, you might be surprised to learn that he can read them a lot more easily than they think. Sheila is over there fiddling with her hair, emotions passing across her uh, face in waves. She's clearly longing for help and he thinks, can I supply it? And Rob, with his earring and his easy smile and his slight lounge in his chair, is obviously a man of the people. Obviously, he's got non-Christian friends just waiting for him to introduce them to church. But will this pastor put them off? And he saw before the service Rita make a beeline for that badly dressed person. Will she despise, her, uh, despise him in her heart when he fails to go up to the same person with quite the same compassion? And Jonathan, whose confidently ordered life just oozes from every pore, as he sits up with his head held high and his Bible open on his lap, looking expectantly, just seems to say almost audibly, impress me. And the pastor panics. Uh, For a moment, he seriously considers how many steps it would be to the door. He could be home in a minute, locking himself in the toilet and uh, weeping over his miserable failure. But with a Herculean effort, he pulls himself together and he starts the show. And he has just half an hour to comfort Sheila, to dazzle Rob with his street cred, to prove to Rita that he really does love the poor and to persuade Jonathan that his life and doctrine are fully in order. 
Baldazi. You see, up and down this country, there are thousands of pastors who are putting on exactly this show at this very moment. Most of them, I think, to be honest, don't really want to. But there are tens of thousands of Sheilas and Robs and Ritas and Jonathans who quietly but firmly demand that they do. They speak, of course, in spiritual-sounding language, but in effect, they are sitting in church insisting that their pastor, their preacher, delivers the good goods or they will take their custom elsewhere. And it is absolutely, utterly godless. They are exactly like the church in Corinth. I hope we've become familiar with Corinth now over a number of weeks. It was a superficially successful church. It was enjoying a pretty easy time in a wealthy, bustling city. And uh, in this comfortable church, arguments had begun to erupt about who had the best speaking style, who had the most inspiring personality, who had the greatest ability to impress the confident city they were in, who could transform lives the best. And Paul is absolutely horrified. From the first verse of his letter, actually, he's been trying to help them to see neither he nor anyone else can make a hypoth of difference to these people's lives without God. It is God whom they need. It is God who will do the work. It is Jesus whom they need to be in touch with. Indeed, Paul, what Paul has been explaining, it is God's intention that everything about his church should display the uselessness of human beings and the glory of himself. Not the glory of the leaders. The glory of God. For instance, in uh, verses 18 to 25, um, uh, most of you will remember, he explained that the message that he was given to preach um, was, must be the message of the cross. And we have to accept that onlookers will declare it completely foolish and declare that the people who preach it are fools. Indeed, says Paul, God has specifically ordained it. He's built it into the nature of his universe. But then God has also ordained that that message of the cross, that message of Christ crucified, will be precisely the the message that he uses to open eyes so that people can see the glory of Christ crucified. God the Son paying for our sins so that we can be completely forgiven. God giving himself for us. God pouring himself out for us. So that by the Spirit, our, hurt, our hearts can be turned from stone to flesh. We can, we can be transferred from death to life, from darkness to light, from misery to joy, from hopelessness to confident hope, 
we can be saved, he says, verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the message of the cross, to save those who believe. That's what God intended to do, so that God gets the glory. Not some clever messenger. It is God's pleasure, God's delight to reveal his glory in precisely that way. Then in verses 26 to 31 of chapter, uh, chapter 1, Paul goes on. He says the very, the very social makeup of the church is designed to display God's glory. God chooses ordinary people to, so that he shames the wise the noble and the strong who think that it's great, their great abilities or their natural nobility that has brought them along. No. God takes ordinary people who can't be in any doubt about their ordinariness, whom the world will immediately identify as ordinary and he gives them the most extraordinary noble status. takes unlearned people and he shows them Christ who is the wisdom of God. He takes, uh, he takes um, condemned, marginalised people and he gives them Christ who confers on them a status of being right with God. Christ is our righteousness, as he says. Marginalised by the world they may be, right there with God they are. He takes unloved people and he calls them holy, set apart, special to him, as he puts it elsewhere, they are God's glorious inheritance. And he takes enslaved people who feel themselves not to be free and he gives them freedom in Christ where they find what he describes as redemption here which begins to be enjoyed now and one day will flourish into glorious fullness in the new heaven and the new earth when they are resurrected. These ordinary people have the most extraordinary status It is because of him, verse 30, that you are in Christ Jesus, because of God, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has specifically set up his church to be comprised of ordinary people, who are given an extraordinary status so that he will get the glory. The message is designed to give God the glory then. The makeup of the church is designed to give God the glory. To strip away any foolish pretense that we are great and to give ordinary people the extraordinary privilege of displaying the glory of Jesus.
Well, in that context, when God has that agenda for his church, how should a church leader conduct himself? What uh, should Sheila, Rob, Rita and Jonathan expect of a church leader? Well, the Apostle tells the Corinthians and us by describing his own ministry in Corinth. First of all, we must see then what he describes, what was going on in his mind, what he describes as his, his resolution. Did you see that in verse 2? For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was absolutely determined that his whole attention should be on Christ. And actually not particularly the glorified Christ seated at the right hand of God. No, the focus of his attention was to be Christ on the cross. Christ dying for our sins. Christ taking punishment so that we could go free. And he says that mental resolution, that inner commitment, affected the way that I behaved amongst you, Corinthians. You need to see that. The first way um, it affected him if our little pointer is going to work. If, if, if the first way it affected him is it shaped the style of his message. In, in, one, in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, we saw the content of his message. The content of his message was the cross of Christ. Um, so one way in which he resolved to know only Christ and him crucified was he kept the cross of Christ absolutely central in, in what he said. But here he's talking about actually the style, the way in which he delivered that message. He uses two words to describe his style of uh, communication. The first one is found in verse 1. He uses the word there, proclamation. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He proclaimed to them. He didn't use literally high words or wisdom. Let's be clear. It's not that his message was totally simplistic. Sometimes when you read his letters, you find that what he's saying requires very careful thought and a bit of hard work. Actually, even the Apostle Peter um, says in one of his letters that, that, that Paul is difficult to understand at times, but worth it. It's not that, he was, not that he was childishly simplistic all the time. No, what he's saying is that he didn't pander to the rules of public speaking of his day. He simply told them the truth. 
as clearly and as forcefully and as transparently and as powerfully as he possibly could. He simply told them the truth. He proclaimed to them the testimony about God. Now, what, 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 what are the public speaking rules for today, do you think? Always make your audience laugh. Use multimedia. Better than that if you can. Tell stories. Keep it short. And none of those things are bad. All of those things, um, uh, someone who wants to communicate the truth has to uh, uh, take some notice of Sometimes they, they, those are helpful insights for us to have, but they are deeply dangerous masters. Soon the Sheilas and Robs and uh, Ritas and Jonathans of the world are sitting back and they're saying effectively, entertain me. I need better jokes. I need slicker multimedia. I need it shorter. And all along, they don't know it, but what they're really starving for is the truth about God. The testimony of God, or as some manuscripts say, the mystery of God, is that he loved his world so much that he sent his only son to die for their sins so that they could be forgiven. The testimony of God is that he offers us eternal joy in his presence if we repent of our silly habit of worshipping other things and turn and worship him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. The testimony of God is that he is prepared to send his spirit into our hearts because on our own we can do nothing to change. But he will send his spirit and he can change stony hearts to flesh and turn them from enmity to, from him, uh, towards him to love for him and help us to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the testimony about God. This is the good news about God and we need to hear that again and again not always presented in exactly the same way perhaps approached from a thousand different angles but again and again the good news is about Christ Paul was not interested in being an entertainer then. He was a proclaimer. And then the second word that he use, uses, called demonstration or, or uh, proof, it's found in verse 4. Look at verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And unfortunately that verse it's very easy to misunderstand. When Paul talks of a, a demonstration of the Spirit's power, it sounds rather like he's talking about with, um, with, with showy miracles that will persuade people. Elsewhere, 
um, the New Testament makes it plain that, that, that miracles did sometimes accompany the apostles' ministry to authenticate them and it happened to Paul. But I, I'm convinced he's not talking about that here. Um, not least because actually he's been quite careful to criticise the Jewish obsession with miracles. Chapter 1, verse 22. Jews, he says, demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews. So, um, um, it would be distinctly surprising if he now came and said, my style was to demonstrate the truth with signs, just like the Jews have demanded. And actually, on closer examination, it becomes clear that he means something slightly different. The word that is translated demonstration here I didn't come with wise and persuade his words with a demonstration. That word was uh, commonly used amongst uh, Greek philosophers in, uh, in Paul's day um, to describe a concern that they had. They said, in the old days, public debates were about finding the truth. But today, they were saying, public debates are just about titillating the crowds. Today, they said, public debates are all about the wise and persuasive words that you might use. But yes, but in, in days gone by, public debates were about demonstrating, proving the truth. So Paul's echoing language that was very common in Corinth and saying, exactly, I didn't come to titillate the crowds with wise and persuasive words. In one sense, you old school philosophers might be rather pleased with me. I came with a demonstration. I came with a proof. I came to show you the truth about God. But then, because he's made it very plain elsewhere, that simple um, demonstrations, simple arguments are never going to convert people from a verdict of anything but fool. He makes it plain that actually what the Lord has done is he takes that demonstration and by the power of the Spirit he uses it to change people. My message and my preaching was not all about wise and persuasive words. It was all about demonstration, he's saying. It was all about proving the truth. Um, and uh, Tony Thistleton, uh, uh, one of the major commentators on 1 Corinthians um, translates how this idea of spiritual power fits into that. He says that it's, uh, we should translate it it's by transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Spirit. That's what he's trying to say. I wasn't showing off with wise and persuasive words. I was simply using transparent proofs which God by his Spirit brought home powerfully 
Not signs and wonders. Not at all. But a presentation of the truth which God then uses. That fits with what we see the Apostle Paul doing in the book of Acts as he preaches to people. He seeks to persuade them to demonstrate the truth about God. And some dismiss him as a fool and others the Holy Spirit touches and their lives are never the same again. That's how I came to Corinth, he says. This is my speaking style. God calls me to proclaim a testimony about him. God calls me to demonstrate carefully the truth about him. And then he'll do the rest. Everything he said, you see, was in essence, you don't need me. It's not about you being attracted to my speaking style. It's not about me entertaining you more than the, best, uh, the, the next person. It's not about me somehow being great. You need God. You need to hear the truth about God. You need to realise it is the truth. And it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit who will do that. It affected the style of his message then, the style of his preaching. And uh, also, it it affected, it shaped his demeanour. Verse 3. I came to you, he says, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Paul often mentions in his letters his weakness. He seems to have not been entirely a well man. Here he also mentions fear and trembling. Was he terrified of the Corinthians perhaps? Is he perhaps, as some people suggest, um, speaking of his fear and trembling before the Lord here? I'm not sure it's terribly important. The point is that he was a man who stood before them in fear and trembling. He didn't come as a proud, confident superhero. He came as an ordinary, weak, fallible human being. I wonder whether we realise how deeply repulsive to God are the leaders who love to display their strength, their charisma, their wealth, their victories, their power, their greatness. The leaders who say, look at me. Paul was eager for an audience. Paul was eager for people to hear him. Paul stood in marketplaces to hear him. It wasn't that he was a shrinking violet who, uh, who, who uh, ran away and hid in a corner. But he was eager for them to hear him tell them about God. That was how he spoke. And that was how he lived. Not trying to pretend he, wasn't, he was someone he wasn't. Not trying to, to build himself up. 
just living as an ordinary man. And that for one very, very clear and focused purpose that he has been coming back to again and again and again as we've looked through 1 Corinthians. And here he articulates it with great clarity, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I've seen uh, churches where pastors have failed that have just disappeared in a puff of smoke and you think to yourself, was their faith ever in God? And I've seen other churches where their pastors failed who are shocked, a little bit taken aback and yet that church goes on and thrives. Some of you know in my dim and distant past I was a vet. Um, I had um, a proportion of new clients who, uh, um, as they uh, walked through the door, they became sort of almost ecstatic that here at last was a wonderful, uh, truly um, a gifted vet who could look after their little moggy or their or, or their cat, and you know your. Your, your heart swells for a moment with pride that someone has at last recognised your great veterinary skills. But, uh, but pretty quickly I learned what was going to happen. Sooner or later, I would disappoint those people. And suddenly in their minds, I would be the worst vet they'd ever had. And they were going to complain to the General Veterinary Council and so on. I saw it happen again and again and again. And it didn't stop when I became a pastor. I would find people walking, uh, walking into the church and they would arrive and they would instantly express themselves as adoring disciples my preaching was so wonderful. My manner was so godly. This church was almost heaven on earth. And I've learned to wait. And I have to say, I have never had to wait that long before they tell me what a disappointment I am to them, how my preaching sucks, how ungodly I am, and what a living disaster Magdalen Road Church is. And if I'd kept the letters, I could, I could let you read them. Their faith was in me. Surprise, surprise, I failed. And perhaps people like me collude with them. I hope not because the Apostle Paul would chide me very, very severely. Do not collude with that. For a minute, he says, either church member or church leader, either people sitting in the chairs here or people who are elders or home group leaders or taking other, any other 
form of leadership. Do not collude with that for a minute. Do not let the admiration go to your head. Do not let people place you on a pedestal. Do not let them for a moment think that you, of yourself, can transform their lives. You cannot. I cannot. No one else can. Now, if you're a leader here, you make it plain again and again and again. I can only proclaim Christ. I can only try and explain to you why the truth about Christ is the truth. I can only live with you as another ordinary human being. That is all I can do. But God can use that. God by his spirit then can create in people's hearts not a faith in human wisdom, not a faith in fallible human beings, but a faith in him. So Sheila, I see your pain. I see that you long for healing, but don't look for healing in me. I am just as weak as you are. I can only point you to God who loves you and gave himself for you, who offers you true joy if you only find Jesus Christ. So Rob, I I can see that you long for your friends to become Christians, but don't put your hope in me. Because actually, without God, if I proclaim the truth clearly to them, they'll walk out the door shaking their heads saying I'm a complete fool. Put your faith in God. And so, Rita, I, I love your commitment to the poor. I deeply admire it. But frankly, I am not strong enough to care for, uh, for people in quite the way that you wish I could. But God can. And Jonathan, I deeply respect your desire for a well-ordered church uh, led by a man who has mastered the seven habits of a highly successful pastor, but you're not going to find it here. because I'm just too weak and fearful and trembling to lead like that and I don't take a particular pride in it. It's just the truth. But I'm so excited that God has assured me that someone as pathetic as me and actually as pathetic as you can be used to lead people to trust in him. Indeed, the way he's worked it out, he's decided to demonstrate your fallibility and mine in order that people would be pointed to the God of the cross. So live it. 
let's live it together. Let's, let's point one another to the God of the cross, to the God who by his spirit can help us, to the God who by, through Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins. Let's point one another in that direction. And when we fail one another, when we are weak and fearful and trembling, let's seek to forgive one another and encourage one another with the words. God will never forsake you. There is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God. So trust him with me and together we will see God glorified in this church and in this city. Let's pray. To repent, perhaps, that you've placed too much trust in a person, whoever that may be. To repent that you have tried to make people trust you rather than God.